Today's Bible reading is from Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tent of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a vowed woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Here we go. I've, hyped, I've overhyped it. Uh, now I have to deliver. So just a mild warning as we dive into Song of Songs. This is MA. Uh, I think the book itself is actually like R18+. plus, But the... <laughs> The sermons will be MA level. So we're not going to talk about um, sex in like an unrestrained sort of way, but we're going to be talking about sexual things. And so I'm assuming, well, mostly all the kids are out the back, um, but uh, up to your judgment as parents if you want them in here or not. So we're going to spend uh, five sermons on this. Originally it was going to be three but there's just so much to talk about. We've, we've extended it to five. And I've shaped it a bit like an old Shakespearean play. So we're going to have our, uh, our prologue today. And we're going to explore how to approach the book and characters in the book and the difficulties with understanding it. And then we'll lay, hopefully, foundations for the future sermons. And then we'll look at the book as a story in three acts. So act one, two, and three. And then we're going to have an epilogue where we reflect a bit more directly on how it connects to Jesus and the new covenant. So we'll do that as we go, but it's worth spending a whole sermon on it because it's kind of complicated, I think. So that's the plan. and uh, We might change it as we go through, but uh, we'll see how we go. So let me pray for understanding and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, come before you today and ask for wisdom and understanding to tackle this tricky book. We've generally avoided it, but we pray, Lord, as we approach it now, you'll just give us the ability and the insight to really hear what you're saying and put aside our own assumptions and really be changed by your word. Amen. Okay, so... Apparently, I've just read this around, so I don't know how true this is, but apparently in Jewish tradition, men are not meant to read this book until they're over 30 years old. But if that's true, I can also imagine a whole bunch of Jewish teenage boys, when they hear of this rule, they secretly run and grab this Bible and they they go somewhere together and they start reading through it. And they start laughing together and they ooh and ah at the different words and the different emotions. And I feel like that's kind of what we're doing now. Like we're reading this book that's in the Bible, but it's all a bit secret and taboo. And we're not really sure if we should be reading it or not. And 
we're pretty sure we shouldn't read it in public. And when certain words come up, uh, not so much this week, actually, but definitely in future weeks, when certain words come up, we're going to kind of smirk on the inside uh, because the language is so, like, intimate and not really for public ears. But then on the outside, we're going to stay like proper Christians, right? It's all serious. So I don't know exactly where this series will go, but my hope for it is that as we read it, these kind of um, overly intimate and overly sexual words that surprisingly actually come from God. And I'm hoping that as we dwell on them, we'll actually learn to embrace and exist with the more intimate parts of ourselves, both individually and communally, and become a bit less like the kind of giggling teenage boys and a bit more like mature and understanding men and women when it comes to like this really taboo topic. I think that's really important for us because our culture bombards us with the sexual and the intimate on a daily basis. So it's pretty rare to find a TV series or a movie that doesn't have pretty explicit sex scenes and not even between a husband and wife, but between people that might have just met minutes ago. And even now in kids' shows, there's ideas of, like, sexual and gender identity and stuff creeping in. So, like, the topic of sex and love and all that is, like, really um, soaked into all parts of our culture. And as Christians, our default is to reject those sexual ethics as non-biblical or not from God, which is right, but we kind of overdo it as well in that we can inadvertently reject sexuality itself and intimacy itself. So when Song of Songs says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips, let him bring me into his chambers, which we all probably know what that means, we feel uneasy about it. And that's just the first few verses. It gets more sexual and more erotic as we move on. And then if we dive into the the possible meanings of all the metaphors and all the language that's used, it goes to another level still. And so we're in danger when we look at Song of Songs of being repelled by God's word because it's so intimate. So the, the importance of Song of Songs for us is that it reveals a dissonance between what we imagine God thinks about sex and what he actually thinks about sex and love and intimacy. So our challenge as we go through this series is to understand it as best we can on God's terms. And it seems that to God, all these themes like love and sex and intimacy is of massive significance. And we can see that right in the beginning title of the book, the Song of Songs. So that title claims that this is the greatest song of all the great songs, a bit like the Holy of Holies, if you remember in Leviticus, uh, was a claim that the inner part of the sanctuary was the most holy place of all the holy places in the world. And so this, God says, is the greatest song of all the great songs in the world. And what's it about? It can't be about, like, fixing a car or cooking dinner because that's too mundane. It's got to be something grand, right, to be the greatest song. But it can't be about power or money, which are grand, but they're meaningless those types of things fade away after a while. The greatest song of all the great songs has to be about love because it touches on the instinctive human need for love 
and the desire for love and the search for love, right? And so the idea of the prologue is to lay foundations of how we can read Song of Songs carefully and uh, navigate our way through this like really tricky book. And it's tricky because at its heart, it's a song. And songs by nature are a bit hard to pin down. So they don't always give like clear borders. They can jump around. Different people can speak and can get lost in the song. But that's then also the beauty of songs because their imprecision lets you enter into their world. When it says in verse 1, let me kiss him, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, it draws us in. The him and the me is open to you. It does refer to someone, and so we have some implicit guidelines, but it gives us freedom to enter into that world. It lets us remember our first kiss or imagine what it would be like to be kissed for the first time. So we're going to go through and pick this book apart, but we don't want to lose our place in it because it's a song. So we've got to balance those two things. Okay. So to lay the foundation for future weeks, so that we can discover what God has to say about love and sex. Uh, in this prologue, we're going to dive into the main characters and the complications they bring with understanding the book. So let me introduce you to the woman. I'm going to call her the lover. Why? Because look at the first four verses. She's a woman, probably a young woman, and she's clearly in love but she doesn't use the words for love that our Christian culture would expect her to use. She doesn't use words like commitment and embrace and forgive. Her description of love here is a physical desire. She longs for a kiss and the smell of his oils and the sound of his name and really the desire for sex. And that's our first complication in the Song of Songs. How do we approach this unveiled presentation of sex? On one end of the spectrum, some Christians dive headfirst into all the sexual kind of openness of the book. And they concentrate totally on the wordplay and the sexual innuendo and the phallic symbolism throughout the book, which there's a lot of. For example, the word love in verse 2 could possibly refer to the act of sex itself, not just love but sex, lovemaking. So it might be saying specifically your lovemaking is more delightful than wine, and that's pretty wild. In some interpretations as well, they understand the word for footprints in verse 8 to actually mean testicles because that's how the word that's used there for footprints is used in Jeremiah. So it's saying, follow the testicles of the goats to find me. Another kind of wild sexual innuendo, right? But then on the other end of the spectrum, some Christians in the past have taken it all as allegory or as metaphor. And they say that this is um, Jesus' love for the church or maybe God's love for Israel. So it uses um, these words and images of love and sex, but really it's all about Jesus. It's not raunchy at all. It's all clean and innocent. But those extremes, I think, are both overshooting it. To find sexual innuendo in every single verse 
would be to miss the point that it's God speaking to us here like he does in every other part of the book, uh, part of the Bible. So it's more than just sex here. But to find Jesus in every verse is just to import your own kind of assumptions about how God expresses his holiness. So we're going to try and navigate this song without crushing into either edge. We'll try to say that this book is clearly about love and sex and that God has something to say about it and it has something to say about God. So this song can have its sexual undertones and some of it might even remind us of Jesus' love or some other aspect of Jesus. So back to the woman, the lover, she's in love, a physical kind of love, but she's also in search of it. She doesn't have love yet. So verse 4, she wants to be taken away with her beloved. She wants to be with him and absorbed in his scent and let the world slip away around her. But from verse 5, something stands in her way. She's lived a hard life. She's been forced into manual labour in the vineyards by her brothers, and so the sun's darkened her skin, which is probably a sign of low socioeconomic class. And she fears that this might get in the way of love because her hard life working in the vineyards, looking after her family's responsibilities, has meant that she's left her own vineyard unattended. Not a physical vineyard now, but a metaphorical vineyard. Her sexuality has has been left unattended for the sake of the physical needs of her family. No one's cared for her metaphorical sexuality. And so the vineyard of her love withers while the vineyard of her family grows. But despite the outward markings of a hard life, she knows she's beautiful and she makes a statement with, of confidence and worth. I am dark but lovely. So she's a lover that's full of contradictions. And in verse 7, she takes the risk and seeks her beloved. So that's our protagonist, the lover. Complex and contradictory and filled with desire, just like all of us, if we're honest, and just like this song. Now let's meet her beloved. Verse 8, he speaks for the first time. He hears her desire and he says to her, find me by following the sheep. He says, come to me and take the risk. Will he embrace her? Or will her darkened skin turn him off? Uh, We'll find out exactly what happens next week. But the question for now is, who's the beloved? That's our second complication. From just verse 8, we think he was a shepherd. But you might have noticed the mention of a king in verse 4. Is she just speaking poetically? Is she saying, my beloved is like a king to me? Or is it the other way around? Is the shepherd the metaphor for her love for the king. The shepherd was imagery uh, used of Israelite kings and leaders often in the Old Testament, so it could be the other way around. If that's the case, maybe the kingly beloved could be Solomon then. After all, the, the first verse connects the Song of Songs to Solomon. That's actually, I think, the most common perspective from what I can tell, that the lover 
that the lover loves Solomon and is trying to win his attention. But because of its characteristics as a song, it's hard to tell for sure. My take, and this is the path we'll go down in this series, is a third view. It's not is it Solomon or a shepherd, but it's both. There are two men in this lover's life, I think. The beloved we meet here is a shepherd, and later on we meet Solomon. And so I think Solomon's connection to the Song of Songs isn't about authorship or about being the beloved of this lover, but about warning. Because Solomon is known for two things in the Old Testament. Positively, he's known for his wisdom. He's wiser than any man that's come before him. But negatively, he's known as a lover of women and one who women love. The Book of One King tells us he's got 700 wives and 300 concubines, more than any man could possibly ever need. And they all led his heart astray. So he was the wisest man in the world, but he was brought down by sexual desire. So in a book of wisdom about love and sex, attaching Solomon's name adds an element of warning. And it tells us this book and the love that we're going to find in this book isn't going to be smooth sailing. So that's the beloved, a shepherd with the shadow of Solomon next to him. Now, last character doesn't actually speak in this section, but they, they are mentioned. They're the daughters of Jerusalem, probably specifically referring to the young women of Israel. It might seem strange that I said they don't speak in this section because in your Bibles you'll have a section that's marked maybe friends or others or something like that, um, indicating that they do speak. So that's our third complication in understanding Song of Songs. It's really hard to know who's speaking. The headings that you have in your Bibles uh, say he or she or lover and beloved or whatever it says in your version. They aren't actually part of the text. It's been added in by the translators for some of the... It's been added in by the translators for our benefit to try and help us read this a bit more easily. For some of the parts, they can tell pretty certainly, thanks to the grammar, who's speaking. But for some of it, they've just had to make educated guesses. And in some parts, I have differing opinions about the educated guesses. Um, And that's not to say that I'm a better translator of Hebrew than these translators. There's absolutely no doubt that the Bible translators know significantly more than me about translating Hebrew. And the translations that we have are very, very trustworthy. It just means that there's ambiguity. It's not definite who's speaking, and so you have to make some choices sometimes, and in some of those choices I'm going to differ from what's um, from the translator's choices. And so that makes this book really hard to figure out. But just like a song, you don't always have to get every line. You don't have to understand every metaphor. And sometimes you can get totally lost in the song but still find your way. So the daughters of Jerusalem here, who don't speak, I think, add an interesting texture to the song. You'd normally expect uh, the lovers to be in a love song, of course, but this love song involves others as well. 
And that in itself implies some sort of connection between the couple, the lovers, and the people around them. That the couple isn't an isolated unit locked away from the rest of the world as much as love might make us want to feel that or do that. But it exists in some bigger uh, environment. The couple's the driving force, but they don't exist alone. And this love story that they have echoes into the community, which is a bit countercultural because we like to be into independent, especially when it comes to love. But it's not quite like that here, and we'll kind of discover their interaction as we go. So that's the characters in this story um, from the first few verses, and that's the complications they bring about in um, our understanding of this song. Things aren't totally clear, but that's kind of expected because it's a song. So we're ready to really dive in deep next week and drink up this greatest song of all the great songs. But for this week, even this first sip of it has a lot to teach us already. I hope it's kind of moved you already. These characters, through their feelings and desires, which are laid out there for us in this book, might shock us a little. It seems like God, in expressing his words to us in this book, is more aware of our inner workings and desires than we care to admit. I'm sure there were parts of this uh, sermon that made you uncomfortable, and there was definitely some parts of this sermon that I felt uncomfortable saying, but all of that stuff is being said by God. At church, we basically pretend that we don't have sexual desires. We're just brothers and sisters in Christ. Never would a Christian talk about sex, and that's kind of just politeness, right? But it's led us down a false way of thinking. Just because we don't talk about it out of politeness, we begin to think that God thinks nothing of it either. But this song, sitting side by side with books like Leviticus and Mark and Revelation, just proves that it's not true that God doesn't think about and doesn't talk about sex. He talks about it very plainly. And if we can get past our own hang-ups with it, he talks about it very beautifully as well. And that opens up a whole bunch of closed conversations that are really important, like the reality of sexual desires, the difficulties of sexual purity in singleness, and the possibility of unfulfilled sexual desires, even in marriage, and so much more. All those sorts of things that we never touch on in church are being opened to us by this book. And I hope that that starts to open you up to the possibility of talking about it. I don't imagine that you're going to start talking to everyone about your sexual secrets. That would be inappropriate as well. But maybe in certain situations, maybe to one person, you might express it. And hopefully if you do that, if you take that risk and do it, it won't be a shock because God's already started this conversation with us. And those discussions are really important to have in church because our culture's view of love, as we kind of touched on before, their view of love and sex is kind of pure carnal lust. It's like hookup culture, it's pornography, it's finding the one, 
It's trying to capture love in a purely physical sense. And ultimately, it might feel good for a while, but it fails. As Christians, we're pretty good at acknowledging that that's hyper-real. That's not really how it works. But our Christian culture views love and sex in an unrealistic way as well. It sweeps it under the rug like it's a dirty secret that we shouldn't talk about, and we prefer words like commitment and embracing and forgiveness. But when we read just the first few verses of Song of Songs, let alone the rest of it, which we'll get into, where a young woman dreams of the kisses of her beloved's mouth and desires his love, desires physical sex more than the luxuries of life, we can't run from the reality that God's view of love and sex is different than both the world's view and our kind of Christian culture view. So in this song we have two worlds, the world of our theology formed uh, partially by the, the Bible and the world of culture formed by sexualized TV, by gender theory, by pornography, uncomfortably colliding. And our job over the next few weeks is to let God reform us on this really important but taboo topic. So I hope that this prologue has given you a starting point to open up to that. It's not going to be easy and it's going to be super uncomfortable and I, I don't know yet what like will come out of some songs, but God speaks about it. And he speaks about it differently than the world does, and he speaks about it differently than even our church does. So we need to listen to that word. All right, let me pray. Father, um, thank you for this book. Thank you that you understand us um, intimately and you know our desires and you know how you've made us. And we pray that we would be open to hearing what you would say about this topic um, help us to be understanding of the different positions that uh, people in this room and people at home might have um, on love and sex. And we pray that um, those positions would move more and more towards what your word tells us. Um, help us to be uh, open and brave about um, hearing your word on this, um, even speaking to each other, even listening to each other, and help us uh, to mature a lot in these next five weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.